All right, so if you have your Bibles, paper or digital or otherwise, we are going to be in uh, Acts 16, following as we dive into uh, Paul's second journey today, um, did part of the first one last week. Um, we're going to survey the journey. It's a, um, it's a little chunk, runs from the end of 15, uh, mostly through chapter 18. We will not um, spend much time on the bulk of it. We are going to hang out in chapter 16, 11 through 40. That's where uh, we want to take a deeper dive there. And we are going to um, work at having um, this connecting the context and call, call and context. We're going to kind of run that a little more. It's what we did last week. Um, thanks to Julie Hogsett. We have a little better visual on this uh, thing, hopefully. So this is what uh, this grid will look like this week as we revisit it. Um, you can really run this with any story in Scripture, any, any story of location, uh, the people in that location, the interaction we have, and the result and fruit of that. So that's um, going to kind of sweep over. This is what we would call the second journey. Then we'll come back and um, look at this grid, overlay it on a big chunk of chapter 16 and, and get going there. Um, I would like to say, many of you were here last week, some of you were not. Um, the idea behind connecting call and context, uh, this is really simply about paying attention, uh, being attentive. So those of us who claim uh, our allegiance to Christ, he has claimed us. Um, it's really about, hey, what has God, how's God built me? What has he called me to? And then how does that connect in the places I am in any given place? The intersection of these uh, three things of location, people, and our interactions together. Um, Paul's call, if you would remember, it's laid out in Acts chapter 9. And I'm not sure if I mentioned it, uh, reiterated last week or not, but it is. Um, three things. His call is to carry the name of Christ. Uh, his second thing is to rulers and Gentiles. So that's very specific in Paul's call, rulers and Gentiles. We saw that play out on the island of Cyprus when he, right out of the gate, uh, he has a proconsul and a sorcerer that he's dealing with. Um, and then also, which is very, very big to Paul's theology and his call, is that he must suffer much for the name of Christ. And we see Paul sort of doggedly pursue that. Those elements of call, he will carry the name of Christ to rulers and Gentiles, and he will also suffer. Um, and as he's doing that, he uses his discernment. Um, he uses his creativity, his wisdom. Uh, Paul speaks several dialects, languages. He's very affluent in different cultures. And so all of who Paul is... Uh, before his conversion is brought to bear as he lives out his call, and the power of the gospel will play out in different locations with different people through different interactions. I think it's worth saying, no surprise to us, we, um, in our culture and in our current setting, 2023, we live in a liminal space, I'll call it that, a liminal space uh, of what it means to be the church. 
in a culture that really doesn't know what it is yet. We were in this sort of era shift. You know, we knew post-World War II all the way up through the 90s, maybe into the 2000s. We kind of knew programmatically, systematically, how to do church stuff. And we kind of, that has collapsed and we kind of don't know. Uh, Something is happening, not just in churches, of course, education, the marketplace, uh, how we do our news, um, how, you know, with, with AI and chat GTP and, and what's this, what are the implications for this about um, everybody who's writing papers and, um, you know, we know Steve gets most his sermons on chat GTP already, so what, where's this going to lead? Um, and all, that's just one sliver of this kind of move from where we were, we kind of just, you guys know, we, everything was sort of settled and there, we had a social contract and everybody were cruising along. All that's been broken over the last couple decades, uh, kind of finished off with the pandemic. That was the death blow. Um, and like David over Goliath holding up Goliath's head, uh, now, you know, the culture has been slain and we don't know what's next. No, you know, nobody knows what's next if you haven't realized that. And so we're in this space, and we need, I think, this kind of grid. Acts helps us, because here's a, here's a thing, neither did Paul or the disciples. They didn't know what was next. Uh, Jesus had been with them. He lived his life. He was crucified, died, was buried. He was resurrected. He ascended, and now the Holy Spirit's unleashed and on the move in these men and women, and they're trying to figure it out. They're discerning. They're using what they can, um, helped by the Spirit of God. They're making decisions, and the gospel is spreading, and things are happening. Real people, real locations, real interactions. That's what we want to look at. Richard Barclay, or not Barclay, Blackaby, um, you might know his dad, Henry, wrote a book called Experiencing God. Um, Richard says this about call, the magnitude or importance of your call, and I would insert assignment, is determined by who gives it. Whatever God calls you to is the most important thing you have in your life. So for many of us, uh, different phases of life, uh, when we're younger, uh, maybe you're a young parent now, uh, immense uh, part of your call is raising children. Um, the call of your immediate family, the call in your vocation. Those are certainly all part of that. And in our discipleship group last week, it's pretty easy to compare ourselves and start saying, well, I mean, look at Acts. I mean, I don't have that kind of call. Look at, look at what this person's doing. Uh, and, and I think it's a good reminder from Richard that uh, whatever God calls you to is a big deal. It's the most important thing we have to carry out. And maybe you have the um, you're fortunate enough to have your call and your vocation or what you do for money mix. Sometimes we don't. Um, sometimes our call to a neighbor or to a certain people group or to a family member, that call might have little to do with what we do day in, day out for our work. Uh, but these calls are a big deal. And whoever, if God gives that to us, we would do well to heed and follow that. Here's a map. I'm not, you have to have really good eyes maybe to see. The cities, but we're going to start, uh, this journey starts 
and makes a loop uh, pretty much counterclockwise here, and you'll see Paul uh, and the crew retracing some of their steps. So let's go to Acts 16, starting in verse 1. Um, Luke writes for us, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. So we're already up past Tarsus, um, Derby, Lystra. You'll remember this from the first journey, um, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. At this time in the first century, lineage passed through the father, not the mother. So Luke's telling us something here. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him. Does Paul have a license for this? I don't know. Because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Uh, I can't get hung up on this uh, spot. I really want to, because circumcision is just a fun topic. But... Uh, I have so many questions. If you read 15, there's a council in Jerusalem. Paul goes there. He says, hey, the Gentiles are included. They go, praise God. John prayed a little part of what James says. There's a council and they say, hmm, how do we allow Gentiles into our community? And a bunch of the Jews say they must be circumcised. And then there's a debate and James chimes in, Peter chimes in and they say, uh, actually, no. We're not going to require that. What we're going to require is they need to abstain from, there's three food laws uh, that would be weird to us, but it's um, things like don't drink blood, don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and another uh, food law that's, I can't remember, and uh, sexual immorality, refrain from sexual immorality. So those four things, do this and you're good. That's the decision, and everyone is happy and praises God, okay? So no circumcision, and all the men in the Gentile world were like, oh, who's this Jesus? Okay, interested. <laughs> um, but what's weird is when you get to 16, a few verses later, what's Paul do as soon as he, gets, uh, he brings on Timothy? He circumcises him. Have you ever wondered why? It's a little weird. Well, first we're told his lineage, his father's a Greek. That's a problem. Paul wants to avoid Jewish controversy. That's unnecessary. And Paul's a complex, complicated guy. If you read about Paul, he is an observant Jew. And even though he rails against requiring the Gentiles to follow certain parts of the law for inclusion, guess what Paul does? Follows the law, right? Paul himself is going to be obedient to the law, even though he at the same time will say, it is not a requirement for salvation. It is not a requirement for our Gentile brothers and sisters. And Tim, him and Timothy somehow get this uh, complication and uh, they're on board. So this is great. Uh, verse four, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Luke's main concern for us is theological. And if you're like me, if you like history or you like uh, geography and context, those are important, those are good, those are not the main thing. The main thing here we see, Luke wants us to know, as a result of all of this, debate in the church, Gentile inclusion, um, complexity and nuance. As a result, the churches are strengthened in faith and they grow daily in number. That's 
what's important to say. Moving along, Acts uh, 16, verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Have you guys ever thought about how the Spirit of God might prevent you from preaching the gospel? Hmm. Just a, an interesting thing. And again, Verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So Paul, as they go, I wish Luke would clue us in on how exactly they knew these things and what the process was of discernment. But they're traveling up, if you see between Antioch over to Troas, they're in this ark. Interestingly, below them, south of them, are all the churches of Revelation. So they are wanting to dip down into these cities, and the Spirit of God is saying, no, you're not going to go there. So they passed by Mysia, went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And then Acts 16.11, we are going to come back to that. Uh, we have a story of Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth. We have a story of a slave girl who is healed. We have the story of a prison and prison break. So we'll swing back to that here in a minute. Turn to uh, or look at Acts 17 verse 1 with me, if you would. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollo, uh, Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Uh, hopefully, we're all on track. When it says scriptures, Old Testament, right? Hebrew Bible. There's no New Testament yet. And so when we say the discerning, the, what Paul and the disciples are doing at this point, they're reasoning with people and helping this come alive. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Um, I guess I should say, since we didn't read it at the end of 15, Paul and Barnabas have parted ways. So Barnabas has a cousin named John Mark, who's very close to Peter. So Peter and Mark are buddies. Barnabas is in there. And after the Jerusalem council, uh, there's a sharp disagreement between Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, and they part ways, and Paul picks up Silas. So you have Paul, Silas, and Timothy traveling. Barnabas, Mark, and some others go on their way. And so there's a agreeable departure. And if you read in some of Paul's writings, I think it's in Galatians, um, he, it's actually, Paul says, actually Barnabas was deceived by Peter, sided with him, and so I had to get out of here, heretic. No. So there's, uh, Luke just says, oh yeah, he didn't want to take Mark, so we parted ways. Later, Paul in his own words says, you know, Barnabas was deceived along with Peter, and so I was having none of that peace out, bro. Have a good mission journey, okay? Missionaries fight too. Let's close in prayer. 
verse 5 of 17. Uh, the Jews, other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying the decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post-bond and let them go. There's a, a fascinating theme in Luke as well. We have, uh, I want to hone in on one, and uh, today's journey is hospitality. Uh, there's one also of women, the inclusion of women, leadership of women. Um, but this is fascinating. Jason opens his house to the disciples, and for his trouble, he gets dragged into a rioting mob and ends up having to pay bond. So I'm sure he was like, praise God. Um, we all love, don't you guys? You love to post bond um, to get out? I've, you know, it's good times. Um, and this whole kind of mix, right? Luke shows us the reception of the gospel, the rejection of the gospel, Paul being faithful to connect his call in his context. It's a mix. And it's spilling over into other people too. Poor Jason. Um, gets tied up in this thing. Acts 17, 10 through 15, they go to Berea. So if you travel below Thessalonica, um, there's some action there. Uh, more trouble is stirred up because people are following him. And then in Acts 17, 16 through 34, Paul heads all the way down to Athens and um, very famous speech at the Oropagus in Athens. Um, it's an amazing a uh, display of kind of Paul at the pinnacle of some of his oratory stuff. He's mocked, um, he's made fun of, but two very prominent Athenians uh, come to faith in Christ, and uh, it's a big, big deal. And then in Acts 18, uh, we head over to Corinth. Hopefully you're familiar with that city. And Paul meets a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. So if you uh, are having children or contemplating having children, which is, I'm sure, 80% of our crowd this morning, if you're going to have children, um, great middle names all through Acts. Uh, these, I mean, Priscilla, Aquila, you got to get some of these uh, and be, you know, biblical in the naming of your children. They were exiled from Rome. So, uh, oh, you go, this is interesting. The Jews are... are, are Forbidden to be in Rome, they're kicked out, and we can that's a whole historical thing. Um, so Paul meets up with them. Silas and Timothy come over, join in Corinth. Paul's doing his tent making thing, and he's there for a long time. I think it says a year and a half. There's opposition from the Jews, there's uh, fruit, uh, good things happening. The Jews try to form a trial against Paul, but the proconsul Gallio is having none of it. And uh, the crowd turns on the Jewish synagogue leader, beats him up. Um, so they have a real reputation of violence here. They take off and sail. They stop in Ephesus, big city there, across part of the sea. Um, 
Aquila and Priscilla stay there, and then Paul, off he goes back down to Caesarea, and then he goes to Jerusalem, and then up to Antioch. So that's kind of the trajectory, the geography of his travels. But we want to come back to Acts 16, and we're going to hang out in 16, 11 through 40. Um, and we're going to run this grid a few times in this. I'll show you how this works, and I think it's a good tool for us um, to think about our lives and how this might play out. So specifically in 16, 11 through 15, I'll read the text. You can see it kind of laid out here. Um, from Troas, we put out to sea, sailed through Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we went to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. Um, just a note in the text, place of prayer, that phrase, it's synonymous with synagogue, right? House of bread, place of prayer, synagogue. So they go out to the river and they're, and they're hoping to find either a building of the synagogue or a, a designated location where they would gather to do synagogue things. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city, Thyatira, named Lydia. So she's not from here. She's from a different city. A dealer in purple cloth. Uh, much could be said, but you could just insert she's, well, she's wealthy. She has, um, that's a big deal. And she's a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So there's all kinds of stuff in this text, just real brief. Uh, the class and culture thing happening here, you probably pick up on some of it. So you have a prominent woman from out of town who's wealthy, uh, who is a worshiper of God, engages with Paul and the disciples. There's a conversion happening. Um, and then it says her and her household is ba are baptized. And usually the stories we get are of the men. Uh, your household would follow the father's faith. And so here we have the household following Lydia. It's a big deal. Um, she is given the freedom to accept Christ and in turn to be hospitable. And this is where we want to kind of look at this hospitality thing. Um, did you notice she invites them to come to her house, but she has to persuade them. This isn't an automatic thing for Paul and the disciples. Um, there's a really unthinkable move happening uh, with Lydia and Paul and Silas and these guys that we just don't see. Um, this is, would really kind of catch your breath, take your breath away. Um, in the first century. So we have a location of uh, Philippi outside the city. Um, we have women, uh, specifically Lydia are the people. And the interaction's a conversation, right? Paul, uh, she's listening to Paul. We can assume he's preaching the gospel. He's explaining how Jesus is the Messiah. She's already a worshiper of God. So this isn't like a pagan, you know, no framework, nothing. There's already established things. She's at a place of prayer which would tell us, oh, there must be um, some familiarity with Judaism and all of these things. And the result is that God opens Lydia's heart, 
her and her household are baptized, and then she hosts Paul and Silas. It's a pretty good one, um, this interaction. Here's a question for us. Um, two sort of, I guess they could be called takeaways. This is the first one today. In what ways do you need to be set free in the area of hospitality? Hospitality, a really big deal to Luke, very big deal in the spread and movement of the gospel. And this isn't just having people over. Um, it could also, so I would say, how do we extend and how do we accept? How do we receive? How do you extend hospitality? What's it look like? Uh, when you talk about our culture, this space of like, we're not sure what we're becoming. We knew how it used to work. We don't know how, what the rules are now. Uh, you know, it's confusing, right? Week in, week out. You can have interactions out in the marketplace and out around where you put your foot in your mouth and you say something you shouldn't and you think, oh, it's changed again and I shouldn't. So how do we practice hospitality in that kind of culture? And what would God do uh, if we focused on that? And we used our discernment and wisdom to be hospitable and not only extending, but receiving. Receiving. If someone invites you to something or invites you over or try, Lydia has to persuade Paul. I just wish I could hear that conversation um, and why they sort of balked at that. Uh, they were per persuasive. She was at having them come over. So hospitality, in what ways could we be set free? I think there's a key to that um, in our culture. So here's the next one, 16 to 24. Uh, right after this uh, interaction with Lydia, once when we were going to the place of prayer, there it is again, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. It's not a terrible pronouncement, right? So they're just walking around, hey, here's who these guys are. Going to tell you how to be saved. Um, Most high God coming through. She kept this up for many days. Days, you guys. Many days. I can't even stand an annoyance for 15 minutes. Like, right? What if, I mean, if you're standing in the line at Fuzzy's or Qdoba, and someone just started screaming what you did for a profession, how long? Are you going to let that go for days? Are we talking days on that? Here's John Ewart, works at JBS, follows Jesus, wants you to be saved. And he's like, oh, do you want queso or no queso? John Ewart, right, for many days. It's just fascinating. Finally, and this is beautiful, Luke's finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. It's incredible. So he exercises a spirit by being annoyed. It's great. Her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them to the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept their practice. Whew, that's quite the pivot on they're upset because they lost money-making ability with this slave girl. 
to these Jews are violating our customs. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. The slave girl, we can see here the resultant fruit is that she is set free from the spirit. Her owners are upset about that, so they seize Paul and Silas, and then there's accusations a beating, and imprisonment. The result in the fruit, it's really not up to us, right? If you look at all these, the location, the people, the interaction, but once you get to what's going to happen, it's really out of control, out of the control of the disciples. They just are being faithful, and then the twist turns, highs, lows, they are what they are. Moving along to verse 25, about midnight... They're in prison. Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Just a note, in Roman colonies... Uh, if you, the, the whole city could be punished because of an event like this. So the jailer is understanding like, hey, this is what I'm dealing with culturally here. Uh, but Paul shouts, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. It's a, I wonder if the jailer was talking theologically. He just about fell on his own sword. <laughs> and then he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And his, we don't know if his category is the same as Paul, but Paul, what's Paul do? He goes right to the heart of the, the ultimate thing. Not here's how you save your life because of this earthquake, but here's how you can be saved. Christ, uh, who is the Messiah, him and his household. Uh, verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. Do you see the hospitality? The care, wound care, the food. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. Second thing, so the first was hospitality. How might we be set free? Second thing, if you want freedom in your life, start with prayer and praise, right? In those deep places. I mean, these guys were just severely beaten with rods and thrown into stocks, and they enter into prayer and praise. I mean, it's just fascinating. Unfazed. You want to talk about Paul locking back on his call, carry the name of Christ to rulers and Gentiles, and suffer for his name. And they're in the midst of it, and they pray, and they sing praises. And I would add, when you cultivate a resurrection freedom in your heart and soul, it impacts the world around you.
So before the, qu- the earthquake and the, the freedom from the prison, it's already happening internally. The, if you want to call it an earthquake, it's not an earthquake, but the quaking, the shaking, this, it's already taking place inside Paul and Silas. It spills out into the jail scene, the jailer, the physical thing, but their prayer and praise are the epicenter. Well, what caused this earthquake? Uh, can we go do a historical study and see what plate shifted in about 48 AD in the area of Philippi? And can we? Oh, brother, right? The quake, the epicenter is at the heart of these guys. They seek union with Christ. And one thing if Paul is doing in his journeys is he's hunting for resurrection, if you want to put it that way, right? He's on the prowl and on the look for new life, resurrection life in people. And if it spills over as a result in fruit into jail cells breaking open and all kinds of things, then so be it. But that's not his concern. His concern is people. Lastly, when it was daylight, the magic... Oh, this is... Paul is complicated and this is a great show of it. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order. Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers... I don't think so. They beat us publicly without a trial. And by the way, we're Roman citizens. Paul, he keeps that card in the back pocket. Don't you think as they're stripping you and getting ready to beat you, would you pull that card out? I'd pull that card out real fast. I'd probably get it tattooed. I like... (laughs) Roman citizen, Roman citizen, Roman. Um, He has been holding that card. Ooh, doesn't it remind you of something Paul would write later about Jesus in that great hymn that even though having equality with God did not claim, he never claimed, Jesus never claimed that divinity, but humbled himself. What is Paul doing? He's doing what Jesus did. He's walking. What is, if Paul doesn't hold that card and doesn't go through this process, what, what happens? We don't have the jailer. We don't have the, the jailer come into faith. We don't have any of this stuff. So Paul says, um, actually, we're Roman citizens. They threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, no. You have themselves come and escort us out. So he makes the officials of the city do the walk of shame, apologize, and escort them. The officers report this to the magistrates. When they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them. They escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, what did they do? They left the city, right? No, no, no. We'll go to Lydia's house, right? The woman who pleaded with them, persuaded them to come. And so they return to her house where they meet with the brothers and sisters They encourage them, then they leave, okay? So we can work this connecting call in context and the result and fruit side of it for the the story of Paul, but also our stories. We cannot control that. And I think there's a key to this, that if we will give up the need to control the result or the fruit 
uh, the certainty over that, we become much more free to be faithful in following Jesus, right? Actual lives, actual places, real people, real interactions. And if I am not worried about being mocked or made fun of or whatever the result might be, then I'm free to interact and have these interactions that are about ultimate thing. Luke hopes we will identify with these accounts of the dilemmas of the early church by comparing them to our own lives. And then we would follow that and join him and Paul in the task of hunting for resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your faithfulness and goodness to us uh, in the midst of all kinds of things. God, we, we uh, repent if we need to of being placed in specific places with people to display your goodness, share of your truth and grace, and we, the places we've neglected that out of fear. Um, a lot of times just out of uncertainty, unknowing what to say, not wanting to look foolish. And Lord, we, during the season of Lent, if that has been us, would you uh, stir in our hearts that our hearts would become the epicenter of a quaking and a shaking that would spill over into these places uh, with dear, dear people who desperately need to know you, need to be set free, need to come face to face with who you truly are. So we ask for courage for that. We ask that you would help us in our ability to extend and receive hospitality. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.